maybe we're testing you and we're only going to give you a little bit of information because we're not sure what you're going to do with that information. Are you quickly going to call child protection? Who else is going to know about this information that I share? Welcome to Radical Nurse Talk, a podcast that explores nurses' communication in serious situations and illness as a radical act of care. I'm your host, Patricia Dragon. No matter who you are, a patient or a nurse, you bring your history to all encounters. When that history includes trauma and or violence, and even if it is long in the past, it can influence future conversations and when faced with a serious health situation. What does it mean for nurses to communicate using a trauma and violence-informed approach? In this episode, I speak with Dr. Susan Jack about trauma and violence-informed communication in the real world of nursing, a cause she is passionate about and for which she has championed globally. Her reflections, vision, and guidance are inspiring. Susan Jack is a professor in the School of Nursing at McMaster University and the program lead for the Public Health Nursing Practice Research and Education Program, also called PHN Prep. Globally and through multi-country research initiatives, they evaluate the nurse family partnership program and leadership roles within the Nursing Network on Violence Against Women International. Dr. Jack has championed for and amplified nursing policy, practice, and research contributions that advance healthcare responses to address gender-based violence. This has included development, evaluation, and implementation of nursing interventions to recognize and respond to intimate partner violence. Her advocacy for and training of health professionals on trauma and violence-informed approaches to care has been an important strategy for promoting health equity and avoiding the re-traumatization of individuals with histories of trauma as they access the health system. I'm so glad to have this uh, opportunity to talk to you. I know that you're speaking in all sorts of venues uh, across the world about these issues, and uh, I'm thrilled to be able to talk to you about some of them today. Can we start with uh, you telling me how it was that you became interested in trauma and violence informed communication in in nursing practice? Um, Thank you, Pat. For a long time, my research has been focused on um, how do nurses best support young pregnant girls um, and new young mothers um, through nurses' work in home visiting. And we were doing a study uh, within the context of a home visiting program called Nurse Family Partnership to figure out How can nurses best identify young girls and young women on their caseloads in home visiting who are experiencing intimate partner violence? And then what would a nursing response look like once young women shared with their public health nurse that they were experiencing intimate partner violence within their current relationship or within the last year? How did nurses learn that? And then once nurses received a disclosure or learned about this experience, what could nurses do? So that was really the start of it, was this work to develop a nursing intervention to identify and respond to intimate partner violence. And so what 
is it that sparked the term trauma and violence-informed communication then? Okay, this is this is a great question and something that I learned so much from the nurses and the young mothers themselves. Because as part of this study, we started with um, asking nurses and asking the young mothers who are enrolled in the program some really basic questions such as, what are your current practices? You know, how are you currently asked about your experiences of abuse or violence and what's working and what's not working and what do you need? And here's what we here's what we learned from the nurses. You know, in the nurses in their current practice, right when they enrolled moms into the program, they had some screening tools or checklists that they were required to ask on the very first home visit. You know, they're meeting a young girl who's maybe 18. Uh, she's probably about 16 weeks pregnant. And nurses had all these checklists of questions that they had to ask the, the client about their health habits. How much do you smoke? How much do you drink? Um, you know, what are your other eating habits during pregnancy? And then questions, very sensitive questions about their relationship. Do, are you, do you have fear in your relationship? Have you been hit? Have you been kicked? Have you been slapped? And what we learned from nurses is that they said, oh, well, we just complete these checklists because the organization needs this data. So that was sort of the first challenge I saw is that nurses weren't always seeing that these checklists were actually important information to inform their nursing work. Um, other nurses were a little, they, they knew in their gut that on the first home visit, when you're first meeting someone and that there's no relationship and there's no trust, that that's not a good time to start to um, ask these sensitive questions. So often those questions weren't asked, they were delayed to later. Um, other nurses said to us, you know, if we don't have a relationship and we're asking these really sensitive questions, uh, we're not sure what we should do if they, if the client actually discloses this history. So for many nurses, it was not so much about their fear of asking the questions, but what do they do with a, a disclosure? And um, they also talked about the challenges of not really having time in their work for these types of sensitive conversations. And then we asked the same questions of the young mothers. You know, what is it like to have a nurse very early, maybe the first time you meet her in a home visit, start to ask you these very sensitive questions? And the clients, the clients were very open. And many of them said, um, well, we don't even remember nurses asking those questions. So that validates what the nurses were saying as well, that, you know, maybe the first visit isn't the right time to do it. But the clients also said, you know, what? we don't know who you are. We don't trust you yet. And so maybe we'll only give you a little bit of our truth. Maybe we're testing you and we're only going to give you a little bit of information because we're not sure what you're going to do with that information. Are you quickly going to call child protection? Who else is going to know about this information that I share? And many of the young girls spoke about really their lack of trust in the health system and that many of them had had very negative experiences with other aspects of social services or the health system. And so they said, you know, we have to really trust you before we open up and tell you um, about our health history or some of the difficult events in our life. And so it was these challenges that made me start to think, well, maybe there's a, a better way that we can learn about people's experiences of trauma or violence in their life. And it's sort of tied in as well with my recognition that 
A lot of nurses are required to do checklist nursing. Their organizations have screening tools or checklists of questions that they just sort of um, are required to ask. Um, but they don't ask these questions um, or the context. The healthcare system doesn't give them the time and the space to ask these questions in a way that clients or patients feel safe. So it was really seeing, you know, these problems of um, clients, you know, not trusting and not feeling safe yet to share information. And nurses really talking about the challenges of checklist nursing that made me go, okay, there has to be a, a better and different way for us to do assessment. And that got me to trauma and violence informed care. Can you explain how it's come to be that it's been trauma and violence informed? So I've understood about trauma informed mm -hmm. communication and care, and I'm hearing violence added. So are you able to talk about that? Yes. Um, so certainly this concept of trauma and violence informed care is an evolution of that concept of trauma informed care. And this has been a term that has been developed and evolved um, by researchers in Canada. Trauma and violence informed care, the purposeful addition of the V into that phrase means that we focus our attention and recognize that forms of violence, particularly interpersonal violence, such as experiences of intimate partner violence, elder abuse, or the abuse of elders, experiences of maltreatment in childhood, are a very specific form of trauma and a very common form of trauma. It gives us the opportunity to raise awareness, um, to recognize that many people experience interpersonal violence across their lifespan. You know, when we look at general prevalence rates, typically about 30% of adults will report that they experienced maltreatment in childhood. Um, globally, about one in three to one in four women uh, will report experiences of intimate partner violence across their lifespan. So that's the first thing that the V does by adding it there is it draws attention to healthcare providers that interpersonal violence is a very common form of trauma. Um, the second thing that it does, and this is where I think of the little V and then the big V. When we purposefully put the V into that term trauma and violence informed care, it also requires us to recognize that many individuals that we work with experience structural or systemic violence. Um, which can mean that when they engage with systems, with our healthcare system, with social services, systems that ideally should be set up to provide supports and help and care to individuals, but many of these systems actually cause harm to individuals. That when individuals engage with social services, um, with social benefit systems, with housing systems, with the healthcare system, that they experience discrimination. Um, they experience racism. Um, maybe their concerns are uh, dismissed or belittled. And I find it highly ironic, I don't know if that's the right word, that we have many systems that are set up to improve their health outcomes. People come to the health system when they need help. But for many people, and in particular for people with histories of trauma, including interpersonal violence, when they engage with systems that they do not experience 
um, as a safe system where their cultural or their psychological or their physical safety is not a prioritized, then there's a very significant risk that they may be re-traumatized. They may be harmed um, by the very act of coming into our system. So that's, you know, where the V is. It really allows us to draw attention to these realities in our world that many people have experienced trauma um, and that trauma can occur at an interpersonal level, but that we also need to be so attentive um, that our systems can be traumatizing and can cause harm. And that's the whole goal of promoting organizations and individual providers to start to think about their work from a TVIC or trauma and violence informed um, approach to care lens. It really allows us to start to reframe our thinking. And there's four main principles of TVIC. And the first one is how do we support both organizations and individuals just to be trauma aware? And I often think about TVIC as sort of the new universal precautions. This is a way of working with all of our clients. We should approach all of our clients or patients um, and colleagues in this way. And the first principle is about um, being trauma aware. And that means that we understand that experiences of trauma and violence influence and impact people's lives and how they think feel and behave. And at the simplest level, exposure or experiences to trauma, whether it's being someone who's a newcomer to Canada, and they had been a refugee living in a war torn country, or working with individuals, you know, who have or who are living in a relationship characterized by violence and course of control, whatever is the source of trauma, that results in traumatic stress, and that changes people's brains. And that changes how they think, they feel, and they behave. And being trauma aware means if I'm a nurse and I see a client start to become very defensive, maybe they start to stand up, they're a little bit angry or they're yelling, you know, that defensive mode, fighting back a little bit. If I'm working from a TVIC lens, I start to go, whoa, I wonder what's happened to this person in their past. It looks like they are moving into behaviors that are protective, you know, either that uh, fight or flight or freeze or fawn. It looks like some of these behaviors are actually their body responding to a threat. Maybe there's something in this clinical environment where they don't feel psychologically or physically safe. And so I quickly need to start to think, I wonder what's happened to them in the past. And how do I quickly start to create an environment that's more safe? So being trauma informed means that I'm always aware of trauma and that I don't judge people's behaviors as what's wrong with them and try to shut them down or um, take control of the situation or dismiss them. Instead, I, I see these behaviors that are often frustrating to clinicians, not as you know, something that's wrong with the client, but it's their way of protecting themselves. So it's reframing, you know, what has happened to this person? And then the second principle of TVIC is then really thinking about, okay, within this encounter, within this relationship, within this organization, what are the strategies we can do as nurses um, that help to prioritize making the care encounter in the environment 
emotionally and physically safe um, for the client. Um, the third principle is also really um, starting to think about our power dynamics uh, between um, organizations and, and, and clients or patients, and as well as the power dynamics uh, between clinicians, nurses, physicians, occupational therapists, social workers, our power dynamics between professionals and our clients, and reframing that as well, starting to think about um, how can this really be a true collaboration? Um, what are the client's priorities? Um, how do I prioritize and build connection instead of just coming in always with my agenda? You know, these this is information I need to collect from you. I need to do this health history or this health assessment, or I, I have to screen you for um, your ACEs or your alcohol intake. Well, TVIC is about saying, okay, let's put my agenda aside first and really start to prioritize what on the client's needs and then focusing on choice. And then the fourth principle of TVIC is all about um, when we do this work that we're always prioritizing learning about individual strengths. And because so much of our healthcare is problem focused, like what's wrong with you or um, how do we identify what are your risks um, or what are your challenges and how do we solve that? TVIC again is about reframing and, and sort of flipping our lens. And in any conversation that we have with clients or patients, starting to ask questions about um, what are what are your strengths or people that you've relied on to help get you through difficult situations? And then for us as care providers, whenever we start to reach that point of developing like a plan of care or goals for care, that we ensure that um, we're recognizing people's strengths and we build upon those. Lots to unpack there. So unpack. Thank you. Um, all right, where to start? Thank you for all of that background information. It's so helpful to start thinking about those things in terms of the backdrop to the words and the nonverbals that we use to communicate with people. You've talked about some examples of violence. What would be an example of trauma? I'm, I'm wondering, so you did mention how, for instance, that actually coming into the health system can be traumatizing or, or be, being in it or experiencing a catastrophic event in, in a life. I'm wondering, I'm assuming that those are traumatic experiences. And then that also nurses, we're humans too. And we might have, we likely have trauma in our own lives. Can you speak to that for a minute? Yes. And I think it, it goes back to us, you know, unpacking what is, what is a trauma? You know, typically traumas in our lives, they're events that are unexpected and there are events that were unprepared for a critical aspect of what is a traumatic event is that there's often nothing that a person can do to stop it from happening so there's really um, a loss of control traumatic events are beyond a person's control and the other thing when we're thinking about trauma is that it's an individual's experience of an event. We could have two individuals that are exposed to an event, maybe a horrific car accident, and their perceptions and experiences of that event could be very different. Um, someone could witness um, or be a first responder to a horrific car accident and process it, recognize that um, there were injuries to individuals, 
um, and walk away and acknowledge this was a, a horrible event, but it doesn't impact them personally for the, the long term. For other individuals might view that same event and um, be significantly impacted by it um, and experience um, you know, maybe some physical effects, um, not being able to sleep, anxiety, or depression. So I think that's the first thing is that we think about what is a tr traumatic event. And there's many different types of traumatic events. There are those types of interpersonal uh, violence, uh, interpersonal trauma that occurs within interpersonal relationships. And I've given those examples. The common ones are, you know, experiences of of, of child abuse or in, um, intimate partner violence or the abuse of elders. Um, but for many people in our society, there is also situational events that result in um, toxic stress or traumatic stress. And that may be um, growing up in chronic poverty, um, experiencing homelessness, being part of, an, of a natural disaster. Um, working in a healthcare environment um, where there's moral distress or um, vi vicarious stress, um, which is often, and particularly now what we're here, healthcare professionals uh, speaking about that this impacts their health. And then there's also uh, forms of historical trauma. So we think about individuals um, in Canada, Indigenous communities that continue to live with the historical and traumatic impacts um, from the 60s scoop or from um, generations of family members living in residential schools. So that's a, you know, a bit of understanding of what traumatic events are. And I'm sorry, Pat, you're going to have to repeat your question. That's okay. That's okay. You did answer my question. Um, but I'm also thinking back to your earlier comment about universal precautions. And it seems to me, based on what you've just said, we need to be walking in the world, recognizing that we're all, or many of us, are traumatized by something. That that That's more the rule than the exception, that there's often things in people's lives. And yet, then the irony, it seems to me, that here we are expecting therapeutic and excellent uh, communication by nurses in environments that aren't terribly conducive to those uh, sensitive conversations. And uh, so I guess maybe we need to talk about like, what do we do with that? So how do we approach it? Maybe you can explain, I'm interested in the, you know, the physiologic reaction that you were talking about that happens while it may be while we're with a person it could be after or it could be a long process uh, can you explain because those those things are impacting how we relate to people yeah abso absolutely um so individuals who've had experiences of trauma as i mentioned earlier over time when the brain is based with cor cortisol it does change how their brain functions and for individuals who've had histories of trauma, their body may always be sort of set at that point where their body is constantly scanning for a threat or another traumatic event. So they're always on guard. And so if you think about um, a patient walking into a busy, you know, even a busy emergency department, 
and their body is already primed and trying to detect threats. And it's loud, it's noisy, there's nowhere to sit. Um, they're trying to find some information like, how long do we have to sit here? I don't feel well. Is someone going to even ask me some questions? Um, that they're, you know, already starting to feel even maybe more anxious. So what does it look like when people are, are experiencing a traumatic stress response? Well, there's different ways that people respond. And so if someone's sort of moving into that fight mode, we might be working with a client where we need to be noticing, like, do they seem to be breathing faster? Do they have clenched fists? Um, are they starting to be defensive or saying no to whatever we're suggesting as options? Um, is their voice starting to elevate um, or get angry? And typically in healthcare environments, when we start to see someone shouting or saying no or getting defensive, typically the reaction of healthcare providers is to escalate as well, right? Like if you don't want my help, then I'm not going to do this or come back when you're ready or, um, you know, and then that just escalates the situation and no one's goals are being met. Um, so when we see those sort of fight actions, like that someone's defensive, again, we move into TVIC mode, right? Take, take a breath. How, how do we deescalate? We might also see some flight behaviors. And um, because my work has been in public health and with nurses who deliver nursing care in, in a home visiting setting, much, a lot of my research has been around exploring what are some of the challenges that public health nurses in the home visiting context experience um, as part of their work. And nurses typically will say, oh, you know, the hardest parts of our work is we, we arrive at the home at the scheduled time and the client's not there, or they've canceled at the last moment, or we're, we're talking to the client in the home and all of a sudden, the young mom is on her phone, you know, focusing on her phone rather than engaging with the nurse talking about, I don't know, parenting tips for the toddler. And again, those strategies, often nurses will go, oh, you know, she's disengaged. She thinks this is boring. You know, she's not interested in learning about how to be a better mom. Now that that is judgmental care. And again, in TVIC, the first thing that we work with is thinking about how do we reframe our thinking? Um, okay, the mom is on her phone. Uh, well, maybe a way of reframing that instead of being frustrated that she's disengaged and thinks this is boring and she's not a good mom, maybe I start to reframe it that, oh, maybe I've started to ask her some sensitive questions. Maybe I'm asking her questions about um, parenting and how she's going to discipline her children. And now maybe that mom is thinking back to how she was parented and maybe how she was disciplined as a child. And maybe she's going to a place that's really hard for her to go through or go to. And it's bringing up some, some activating or triggering memories about her own childhood. And she's getting stressed. And what an easy way for, for her to sort of start to avoid this is she's in flight. She wants to avoid this conversation. And so, you know, maybe a way of avoiding wanting to um, not go there in her mind is to go to the phone. And I'll say to nurses now, okay, so reframe that. Maybe that cue that that client now is looking at her phone is her way of saying to you, you've gone too far and we need to stop. And as a nurse, I need to go, okay, maybe I've treaded on a topic that's sensitive. And so maybe now 
I'm going to back off a bit. I'm reading her cues because I'm trauma aware. Maybe I'm going to do a quick check in with her. Um, maybe ask, maybe this is a topic we can come back to on another visit or explore how this has been feeling. So, you know, thinking about some of those flight behaviors, um, darting eyes, people's eyes are widening. You're seeing any behaviors where it looks like they're wanting to escape. Um, and I think often, too, when if you work in a clinical environment where one of the challenges is that clients are often canceling next visits or being no-shows, instead of us judging that, maybe we need to think about what was going to be the purpose of that visit and did we prepare the client? Maybe it was something they were not prepared to do and it was going, they were feeling like that visit or appointment was going to be something stressful and we hadn't prepared them so it's easier to cancel. So that's sort of a flight response. Uh, sometimes clients can also have a freeze re response. And again, you might see a client just starting to zone out or dissociate. And again, that's another cue for nurses that, okay, maybe they're starting to have a traumatic stress response. And this is their way to protect themselves because we're walking into a conversation that is triggering for them, that is stressful for them. And we need to read that cue. If they start to say, oh, I can't remember, I don't know. And again, um, often the things that I'll say to public health nurses, if there's any point of your practice that frustrates you or irritates you, that's the time you need to put your trauma lenses on and reframe. Um, because again, I've had nurses uh, uh, say, oh, it's really frustrating when they, you know, I'm asking them questions in their health history and it's all about, oh, I can't remember or I don't know. Sometimes the interpretation is that, well, maybe this client uh, just um, wants to speed through or, you know, they don't want to share that information and I really need that information. And I often say, well, no, maybe let's reframe that again. If we're trauma aware, we it's important for us to recognize that individuals who have a history of trauma, of any type of trauma, that trauma impairs our um, ability to concentrate and our ability to remember. So truly, maybe we're asking a lot of questions and it's starting to overwhelm someone and they really cannot cognitively remember the information. So again, that's another cue for us to go, okay, maybe this assessment is going on too long and maybe we say that's enough for today and we'll revisit it on our next home visit um, or maybe, you know, with your permission, the nurse on the evening shift can come back to this. Um, so those are some examples of looking at what like freeze looks like. Can and, I just ask you, yeah. before we go to the next, because this seems to me a really critical one when I think about people getting a diagnosis yeah. or a prognosis or information about the loss of a loved one or a loved one's condition, that freezing could be happening. Mm -hmm. it, it reminds me. When my husband had a, a cancer diagnosis, I can remember the doctor talking to me. So it wasn't a nurse, but it was a doctor talking. And I remember this big buzzing in my ears. And I don't, I just, I remember I wasn't really hearing things. And would that be part of a freeze response? Absolutely. And that person will come back and say, well, we told you this. And then the other thing that that occurs to me is, how it seems like the therapeutic relational work of nurses is 
in, I don't want to say opposition, but it's so challenging to do within the organizational uh, structures. Pat, I 100% agree with you. You know, there's so much talk about what does it look like to disrupt systems or change systems? And anytime I talk to nurses about trauma and violence informed care, I always reiterate that nurses cannot be trauma and violence informed unless their organization also commits to these principles. Because in order to do this work well and to focus on the relational aspects, the ability to make genuine connections, the ability to prioritize psychological or emotional safety requires time. And I think that organizations, it is the responsibility of the organization to start to re-envision what an allocation of time looks like. That's a big shift for organizations because I think many of our practices, our assessments, our procedures, how we tell people about bad news is set up for the efficiency of organizations and clinicians. We have a lot of people to see, a lot of you know diagnoses to give if you're in medicine a lot of education to give. We have a lot of check boxes to say, we we did this assessment, we gave this education, this person has this diagnosis, we've given this referral. Great, that's efficient for systems. And clinicians can say, well, we did what we're supposed to do and what the checklist um, requires us to do. But I, the longer I do this work, I think, well, to what, to what end? Great, we did what we were supposed to do that's on the checklist. And we we pushed people through the system and we gave people referrals. But to what end? Is it making a difference? There's some research that suggests that approximately 70% of referrals don't actually make it all the way to fruition. Like when a nurse or physician or social worker just says to a client, oh, uh, here's a phone number or here's a referral for you to follow up for mental health supports. Um, people don't follow up on those because those are really complex processes and require active system navigation. Um, so I do think that there's a responsibility for organizations to revisit how time is used. How do we uh, provide scheduling and spacing for clinicians uh, to a recognize that the sharing of a difficult diagnosis um, as the example that you've given in the work that I do often, you know, some of the difficult work is maybe when a public health nurse um, observes or suspects that there's child maltreatment and they they have a responsibility, um, a legal requirement to report to child protection. That's difficult work. And how do you talk to a, a mother about that? How do you prepare them? How do you engage them in the process? We need to give people the time to build the relationships, uh, to do this work well. And of course, every organization will say, well, we, we don't have time. And I always think, well, where do you want to invest your time? Because we can continue to walk through systems where we do these checklist approaches, where everything gets done. We've given the diagnosis, we've given you the health education, we've handed you some pamphlets, and we've given you a referral onto the next spot. But the reality is, um, what happens if as soon as someone heard that diagnosis of, of uh, cancer or of difficult news, they froze and they heard nothing else. And they don't retain the information on, on even how to follow up on the referral now to another oncologist or whoever the next specialist is. That's going to impact people's health outcomes because they were not primed to hear the information. They were not ready. They were not supported. Um, there was 
no relationship where the person feels safe to ask more questions, um, to say, you know, is there an opportunity for me to come back a second time when I'm more ready to, I'm more prepared to ask the questions I need to ask. So ultimately, that has to lead to poor health outcomes. If people are not following through on the recommendations from the healthcare provider, so I'd much rather than we invest and, you know, if people don't follow through, then that's going to lead to worse health outcomes, uh, more appointments, um, organizations, clinicians being concerned about non-adherence to whatever treatment has been prescribed. Those have costs to the system um, and those become very complex costs because I fundamentally believe people then get sicker. So how do we support organizations to uh, move that time up front. I would much rather have more time at the beginning to establish a relationship with someone, understand what are their priority concerns first. Yes, as healthcare professionals, we're always going to have our agenda, and our agenda will be about making recommendations for treatments, interventions, um, programs, approaches, strategies to help them achieve their health goals. But why don't we start first with understanding what's most important to the client? or to the patient and addressing that first, building some trust, building a relationship. Because maybe if there's trust and relationship and we address their needs first, then that might create some openness on the client's part to be more receptive to listen to what healthcare professionals have to offer. And then we can work in collaboration to address their health goals which hopefully, hopefully can achieve better health outcomes. So I do think this work is challenging and I think it requires um, organizational change. And earlier I mentioned nurse family partnership, which again is a model of nurse home visiting. It is a model of home visiting for the highest risk clients, young, young women who experience significant levels of social and economic disadvantage. And nurses that I've done focus groups with who deliver this program, they often call themselves the ICU nurses of the community, that they are working with clients who would be in the equivalent of like multi-system, multi-organ failure. They're working with clients who have um, significant mental health concerns, depression, anxiety, PTSD. Many of their clients use substances to manage the symptoms um, of their histories of trauma. Um, all of their clients experience significant levels of poverty. Often their housing is very in, unstable. Their relationships are often characterized um, by, by violence. So these are complex young women and families that the nurses work with. But the NFP program has um, taken up the principles of TVIC. And in this work, nurses only have caseloads of a maximum of 20 clients. And that allows them time to build relationships. They have flexibility in how often they visit clients. When a client's going through a very particularly maybe a difficult time or a time when there's multiple transitions, maybe it's right around the time their baby's born maybe the, and they're moving to a new house and their partner's moving within them, nurses have flexibility to make choices to put more supports in, to visit more frequently. Um, but there will be times because the nurses are strength-based that they start to go, wow, the young mom's gone back to school and she's working part-time and her partner's working and the baby is in um, uh, daycare. There's a lot of good strengths going on. The nurses then can reduce their supports. Um, and in this work, um, the nurses spend the first few visits 
exclusively focusing on developing the relationship. Help me to learn about you. So it's a program that has really re-envisioned the use of assessment tools and time. So I, I, and to do this work, organizations have to be on board and we have to think about how do we give clinicians the time to do the work that they've been educated to do? Good question. I, I think uh, that that's uh, something that we could be thinking deeply about. Nurses have a lot of education. Uh, we know what we're supposed to do. I think you're, you're saying that conditions uh, impose limits on on how we can do that. And and so that doesn't feel good for nurses and it doesn't feel good for patients either. But I'm wondering, recognizing that uh, nurses in a public health environment mm-hmm. have a very different practice than a nurse in an emergency department, an intensive care unit, a medical unit, long-term care setting. So the the time available just by context of work does shift. I think you're saying we need to be sensitive to that. I'm wondering if there are any particular words or phrases that you associate with a trauma-informed approach to talking with patients or clients and their families. I think I've heard some of those things, uh, like what happened, or maybe that's a question we're asking ourselves, what happened to you, not what's wrong with you, or uh, tell me about what's important to you today. <laughs> yeah. Does anything come to mind? I know you can't script us, but right. what is it that it looks like in practice? Okay, the first thing is being trauma aware. And and again, reiterating that point, that as you see behaviors that start, maybe start to niggle at you or make you feel a bit frustrated, to quickly think, this person is stressed and does not feel safe. It's a, be- it's a best guess. 70% of people, global estimates are 70% of people have experienced one traumatic response or one traumatic event. So quickly to recognize that when we see an escalation of those behaviors, that maybe there's a good chance the person that we are working with in any of those settings is starting to not feel psychologically or physically safe. So what do we do? Um, A really powerful question is to ask in any circumstance, um, have you had any life experiences that you feel have impacted your health and well-being? And can you share with me how these experiences have affected you? And um, even during COVID, I went went back and worked um, as a nurse in um, the vaccination clinics. And very often, you know, many people are scared of needles or have had difficult medical procedures with IVs and they walk right up to that chair. And I can see that they're anxious, stressed, they move their chair away from me. And as a nurse immunizing, you know, I have less than five minutes. Um, So even in that context of a very short encounter, as soon as I was reading those body cues, and it's always about reading body language and being aware of your own body language, I, instead of going to my checklist of questions around, do they have a fever that day or what are their allergies? I'll get to that. Um, But I might even have on those days started with a question around, um, tell me about some of your past experiences um, with pokes or with immunizations. Um, And what were those experiences like for you? And what made it easier for you? And all of a sudden you just see someone go, oh, this nurse recognizes that this is hard for me. 
And I'm asking also, what made this easier for you in the past? Because immediately they write, they write away might say, I just need to lie down or can someone hold my hand? Great. They've just solved the problem. So I think if in those small windows of opportunity that nurses are always being sensitive that someone is not experiencing safety, um, start to quickly examine what is what is the purpose of their encounter? What are they doing? And maybe then just ask that question again, you know, like, um, have you had any life experiences that you feel have have impacted your health and well-being? Or, you know, have you been in an emergency department before? And what are some of your past experiences that might influence how you experience this care encounter? And how did those past experiences affect you? So I think those are some broad, open-ended questions that at least open up the conversation. And the other thing that I would like to, to really um, highlight for nurses when we're doing trauma and violence informed inquiry or assessment is to recognize that um, it is not our goal to get all the details of their traumatic event. This is not about hearing everything about their traumatic events or their experiences of violence, because the retelling of those stories for some people can be re-traumatizing and we don't want to go there. Um, so it's about really instead shifting our questions around how have past events impacted your health and well-being? And what was that like for you? And what helped you navigate that or manage those symptoms? Because that gives us symptoms, health symptoms, that we can address. We actually don't need all the details of people's lives to move forward with our nursing interventions. Um, and I think it's important as well that if when we do this work well, that nurses are prepared and recognize that they will just get disclosures. When you focus on relationship, when you ask people about how certain events or experiences have impacted them, and you do this in a way where they feel heard and validated, they will respond. Um, so nurses also need to be prepared to manage disclosures. So that maybe is another conversation for another day. I'm also thinking that it's a lot also to ask nurses to hear and be present for those disclosures if there's also a lot of suffering on the part of the nurses, like hearing one more situation that you can't change. Right. Um, that doesn't mean that you can't uh, use those principles, but I just, you know, thinking about that dynamic, it's painful to hear people who are suffering because of symptoms and they can't get their scans for, you know, three months, or if they know they have a, a cancer, but that can't be uh, operated on for a few months, or they can see their uh, loved one deteriorating. And they can't. And so those stories are traumatizing to nurses, hearing them and, and not being able to shift that reality. So um, so sometimes it makes me think of something I was once told by, uh, by someone to say, be careful what you ask for, be, right. or, or be quite, because, uh, what are you going to do with what you respond? So I'm wondering if maybe sometimes we intentionally don't ask these things because we, we, we don't, we want to protect ourselves from, from what we're hearing. 
Absolutely. In my own research and in other research that examines um, healthcare professionals' practices around asking, for example, about intimate partner violence, one of the key barriers is um, not wanting to open Pandora's box, right? The barrier is not the asking, but the barrier is not having the time or the confidence or the skills um, to be able to respond to that disclosure. And so absolutely, that is a documented barrier. Um, but I like to reflect back, and again, I do this work with nurses and um, and particular nurses in the community. And I always reassure them that they have the skills to respond to a disclosure. It actually is less scary than maybe what they think. Because when we look at the the evidence and the qualitative research around um, what women expect from their healthcare professionals following a disclosure, the number one response is they want someone who will listen, who will just allow the client time and space to have control over sharing their narrative. And I think every nurse and hopefully every healthcare professional has develop the skills to actively and reflectively listen with compassion. That is enough sometimes to listen and then to validate that individual's experience, to believe them, to um, acknowledge their strengths, um, to believe all aspects of their story. So it doesn't take a lot of time to listen and to validate. And I think sometimes what also underpins the fear. And again, I only speak from my experiences and my research with public health nurses, is sometimes the nurse's immediate reaction is, I have to fix this. And this is really big. This person has just shared with me um, that their, their partner pushed them down the stairs during pregnancy, tried to choke or strangle them during pregnancy, that there's patterns of course of control. And the nurse themselves is activated or become stressed and they move into fix it mode. How am I going to fix it? And I often share with nurses in reflective supervision or when doing these types of consultations that this is not our job to fix. Many of the individuals we work with, this is part of their normal life. And they have been living these realities for a long time. And in the types of encounters we have, it is not our job to fix it in the moment. But instead, what we can offer is an acknowledgement that this is a really complex situation. I may not have all the answers today, but that I am committed to working in partnership with the client to identify what's in most important to her what strategies she's already using to keep herself safe and to offer options to build on that. And that this is a complex journey and that we're going to do this together and walk along this journey together. Um, and or if this is not my role, maybe part of that journey is that I will then connect them to someone else who has the skills and the knowledge. And I find that that starts to reduce some of nurses' fears and anxieties as soon as they recognize, oh, I don't have to fix this in the moment. My job is to listen, to validate, to acknowledge, just to acknowledge the complexity of the situation, to identify that the individual has some strengths that we're going to build on, 
And that if it's not my job to intervene, but there's someone else who has more specialized skills, then maybe it's my job to do that warm referral and actively support that connection. Um, so yes, this work is hard for nurses, but I believe with even within five minutes, we can listen, validate, identify some strengths and acknowledge the complexity, and we get out of our own way. We don't have to fix everything in that moment. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. This counsel to um, wrap up our, our talk today, I think you've offered some very real, tangible ideas for us to start to take trauma and violence informed communication into our practice and uh, i'm very grateful for that i am wondering if people wanted to learn more about this are there resources but did you want to comment around that in particular uh for nurses absolutely um Part of my joy of my work is in creating practical resources that nurses and organizations can use to think about how to apply these skills. Um, so I'm the lead for the Public Health Nursing Practice Research and Education Program. And we have developed um, a set of resources that uh, we've developed them for public health nurses, but in my experience, they've they're really relevant to any clinicians that work with people um, on common challenges in practice. And all of our resources related to, for example, um, how to uh, de-escalate if someone is anger and return to a place of safety, um, how to respond to disclosures of trauma. We've developed these resources, and one of our principles in developing these is to ensure that all of our technical resources are underpinned by TVIC um, principles. Um, also through PHN Prep, we have developed an e-learning module uh, for trauma and violence-informed care in public health. And it's a specialized module that um, follows um, a series of excellent e-learning modules on the, the foundations of trauma and violence-informed care that have been developed by um, my colleagues who are part of Equip Health. So I'll give you all of these links. These are free e-learning modules. And then I'm also part of um, the Gender Trauma and Violence Knowledge Incubator. And again, we have developed a number of resources for clinicians um, and organizations on how to do TVIC both at the individual and the organizational level, including um, strategies to assess your organization's readiness to do this work. What does it mean to do a trauma walkthrough, to walk through your organization, identify um, you know, uh, with clients or patients, what types of elements within the environment might be stressful? So I will share those resources with you. And um, just this year, we have um, um, two of my colleagues, Nadine Wathen and Colleen Varco, um, have edited a new um, handbook called Implementing Trauma and Violence-Informed Care. Um, and it's just been published this year by the University of Toronto Press. And it's a series of chapters with case studies um, and strategies for different sectors, from police to health, uh, to public health, to education, on how to practically apply these strategies in practice. Thanks so much for those. We'll make those available. 
And thank you for sharing so much of your work and ideas and passion for making a difference in the relational work that nurses do. And thank you, Pat, for creating the space for us to have these conversations, to think about how nurses can nurse in a way that I believe most nurses want to. Any nurses I speak to, when they're given opportunities to practice at their full scope of practice and prioritize the relationship with their client, have such satisfaction with this with their work. So I think things need to change and, and I appreciate this opportunity to think about what that could look like. Thanks for listening. You can reach me or information about this episode on our website, www.radicalnursetalk.com. The producer editor of this podcast is Jeremy Ramos Foley, social media by Amy Strachan. And if you'd like to support the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. Join me next week for more Radical Nurse Talk. In the meantime, have a radical conversation in your practice. It can change lives.